Well, good morning. For those of you that are visiting with us today, I am not Michael Fueling. I am Tim Chin, the discipleship pastor at Village Church. And the guy that was up here leading the worship, leading us in worship, was not Scott Dick. So if you're looking at the bulletin, you're, always, you're now all confused, right? We got all kinds of audibles going on today. How many of you guys like to give gifts? Like to give gifts. Okay, good. Several of you. You know, if you're a parent or grandparent, I know you love to give gifts to your grandkids and your kids. And, you know, for me, you know, one of the things that just thrills my heart is when you give that child that special gift, that special something that they've wanted their entire life. Oh, I could just, oh, this is so great. I wanted this forever. Yeah, three years. But they just light up. Because they've got that thing. You've given them that thing that, they've, that they so wanted. You know, and it does our heart good. Now, most of us, we, whether you love to give gifts, I know all of us here like to receive gifts. Right? No? Oh, my. Oh, okay. Well, others of you in here, I know there are others in you who fit in this category. You fit in the category of my wife. It doesn't matter giving, receiving, watching other people give and receive. It doesn't matter as long as gift, gift giving or gifts in somehow are in the equation. Your life is wonderful because your love language is gifts. I don't quite understand that, but you know some of you've got that, correct? You guys are asleep today. Maybe maybe that first service was a little more alive, John. Well, today we're going to talk about, or what I'm going to talk about is God the ultimate gift giver. And what we're going to look at from this passage in Ephesians chapter 2 is how God has given us some very specific gifts. Now, we're not going to cover every gift that God has given us because since he is the ultimate gift giver, that would take, you know, that would take a whole series of messages and maybe several years to cover all the gifts that God has given us. We're just going to look at the three that are found in Ephesians chapter 2. So would you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 2, and we're going to begin in verse 4. And before I get to reading, I just want to back up a little bit and just say John did a great job last week talking about the bad news found in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, right? And I was so thankful that when Michael and I were talking about this, and we know that Michael will be back on Tuesday, by the way, so if you don't like this message or last week's message, Michael will be back next week. But when we were talking about this, you know, we had, you know, the option. You know, Tim, do you want to go to the first part of this chapter or the second? I want the second half. We'll make John do the first half. And John did a great job. But anyway, I loved what Sam said. If you were here with us last week, you know, Sam, at the end of our service, we do communion. And Sam made this comment. He said, if it wasn't for the bad news, good news would only be routine. You know, and if you can just kind of put your head around that for a little bit. You know, if all we ever had was good news, good news, good news, good news, good news, good news, pretty soon the good news would be like, well, okay, what else? But when you understand the bad news from the first few verses of this chapter, then and only then can we fully appreciate the good news that I get to talk about today. Also, in the original language, verses 1 through 7 is one sentence. And I want to talk a little bit more about how that's structured a little bit later. But it's, how many of you parents are kind of like me? You know, in and, and your parenting, have you ever gone on a, on a rant? You know what a rant is, right? Oh, maybe that's a word that we don't use 
We use that word down in Kentucky where, where I, I grew up. You know, you get on a roll and you just start saying things and pretty soon you're finding, I'm saying the same thing over again. And you don't even realize it. And mom, you, dad, you've already said that three times. My, my kids always say, dad, why do you have to say stop three times? Stop, stop, stop. Dad, I heard it the first time. Yeah, but I'm on a rant. I got to just, Paul is on a rant in, in these verses. And rants aren't bad. You know, rants sometimes are very good. He is on a rant in here, and he, you're going to see that he repeats himself in several places. And in several places, he says something, and he says, oh, by the way, I said it. Let me say it a little differently and add a little bit more to it this time. So that's what he's going to do. And once you understand that, you'll understand this passage. In verse 1, John pointed out that, he, that Paul started off by saying, and you. Before, we're like this. And what's important for us to get our heads around is that who he's talking to are all those Ephesian Christians in that church. Once we're like this, what he described last week. But what we also need to understand is we too, here at Village Church, were once like this prior to what he's going to talk about. But here's the turning point in that sentence, and it's found in verse 4. The turning point. But God. He starts off, and you, but God. That's the main subject of this part of the, the sentence. Being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised, uh, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is, a, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, Four good works, which God be, uh, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As I said, this passage is going to list three key gifts that God has given each of those who receive his gifts, his love. So what, the first one I want to talk about right now is the grace that he gives us is a gift. The grace itself is a gift. You know, um, the story is told, and it is recorded, so I'm going to assume it's a, a true story, that years ago in England, there was a, a conference. And in this conference, they were debating the uh, world religions. And they were doing a comparison, saying, okay, you know, which religion's better? What sets Christianity apart from the other ones? And so these learned scholars were coming together, and it was between sessions, and they were kind of in a, off in a side room, and they were kind of arguing about what makes Christianity different. One person spoke up, and he said this. He says, well, what sets Christianity apart from all the other world religions is the concept of the incarnation, that God would leave heaven and be born as a baby and take on the form of, of a human being. But then there was another person who spoke up and said, well, yeah, but there's other world religions that they also believe in the incarnation. And not only incarnation, but they also believe in reincarnation. So does that really set Christianity apart? Another person suggested, 
Well, it's the resurrection. The resurrection is what makes Christianity unique. You know, the belief that, that death is not the final word. You know, that the tomb is empty. That's what sets Christianity apart. And then someone else slowly said, no. No, other religions also account for people coming back from the dead. So that can't be it. Well, the debate got pretty heated, and in walked C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis was smoking his pipe and carrying his briefcase and papers and sat down quietly, heard this commotion going on. And finally, after a little bit of time, someone noticed that C.S. Lewis was there. And they said, uh, so, Doc, what sets Christianity apart? What makes it so unique in, in comparison to all the other world religions? And without missing a beat, he said, well, that's easy. It's grace. Grace is what makes Christianity so different and sets it apart. It's the truth that Christianity claims that God alone loves and he loves freely without any strings attached and no other religion can make that claim. Well, they stopped and they all thought about what he said and one guy said, uh, well, yeah, you know what? That's, that's, that's right. You know, because uh, Buddhism... Buddhism says there's an eightfold plan and path that a person has to travel in order to receive enlightenment. So it's about works. It's about what you've got to travel this path and fulfill these eight, eight paths. Another person said, yeah, that's right. You know, Hinduism, Hinduism, they, they believe in karma. And karma is that your actions continually affect the way that the world will treat you. And that there's nothing that comes in you or comes to you that you didn't set in motion by your prior actions. So that, that's true. And then the Jews. You know, the Jews, they, they believe that obedience to the Old Testament laws are totally necessary for God's people in order to find his favor and his, his acceptance. And then another one person said, yeah, and Islam. In Islam, Allah, their God, is a God of judgment and justice. And you must appease him and keep him pacified or suffer his consequences. So in the end, they concluded that what set Christianity apart from all the other world religions is grace. And that is the, that is the gift that I want to talk about first. And that's why Paul put it first, because it is the one that all the other gifts flow out of. And you're going to see that. You know, for Paul, Paul's key go-to subject in this book, in the book of Ephesians, is the subject of grace. It is the go-to passage and the concept that any time in the New Testament Paul talks about salvation, all you got to do is look real close. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about Jesus dying for you. He's talk he will always mention somewhere in those verses around there the subject of grace. Grace is, a part, grace is so important that apart from grace, there is no salvation. Now, most of us know Romans chapter 3, verse 23. But I want to just, just throw that up there and let's see what it says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. That's the, that's the part that uh, John spoke about last week. That's the part that Paul spoke about prior to these verses. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But here's the good news. And are justified by, by his grace as a what? It's a gift. The grace itself is a gift. And the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Grace is a gift. It is not a work. 
Grace means that there's nothing that I can do to earn it. There's nothing I can do to deserve it. Grace is so amazing is that I can do nothing to make God love me more and I can do nothing to make God love me less. That's crazy. That's crazy love. That's amazing grace. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Grace is how we're saved. You know, I loved what John said last week. John, I'm going to just keep stealing your stuff. You know, I hope you don't mind. You know, he said that we were totally dead. We're not partially dead. We're not mostly dead. We're not sick in our sin. We're totally dead. You know, that's total depravity. You know, we didn't need a surgery to make us better. We didn't need some kind of medicine or a pill. We didn't need to go to the doctor. We didn't need to have a better outlook on life. No, we needed a miracle. We were dead in our sin. Dead. And unless we understand and fully get our head around how dead and how depraved we were prior to Christ, we will never understand how great grace is, how amazing grace is. You've got to have the bad news in order to fully understand the good news or the good news is just routine. Are you with me? He says this in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy. What is mercy? On the back of your sermon notes, there's community group questions, and I've got some terms there, and you can read through those in your community group or now, you know, if you tune me out, that's okay. Um, mercy is undeserved kindness. It's getting, not, I'm sorry, it's not getting what you deserve. It's when you broken the law and the police officer says, you know what, you're going 60 and a 30, you deserve punishment. You deserve a major ticket and a major fine. But you know what? I'm going to grant you mercy and just give you a warning. That's mercy. Not getting what you deserve. And so often people scream, I want what I deserve. I want what I earned. You know what we earn? Death. Thank you. That's what we earn. That the wages of sin is death. That's what we earn. We don't earn mercy. We don't earn grace. And he says this, being rich in mercy because of his great love. Because of his great love. Now, grace and mercy does three things, or Paul's going to show us this in this passage. In verse 5, it says, he made us alive with Christ. Remember I told you I was going to do a little English lesson? This is the main verse, a verb in this sentence. God made us alive. Made us alive is the key verb in this entire sentence. That is what Paul is trying to tell us. That he made us alive. Before we were dead, but God made us alive. And not only did he make us alive, we're no longer dead, but he raised us up with Christ. We're no longer weak. Christ comes in. And then he seated us with Christ. So we're no longer earthly. Think about this. Your permanent address changed when you received God's grace. This resident, whatever it might be at your house, on the front of your, front of your apartment, front of your house, is your temporary address. Your permanent address, because you're only going to live here for a few years, and if God grant you, you might live here on this earth for 100 years. But for eternity, our home is in the heavenly places with Christ. 
Isn't that crazy? Why did God love us so much? Why did he pour out his grace so much and mercy so much on us? Well, Paul tells us that. So that, verse 7, so that in the coming ages, he, and that's God, God might show the immeasurable riches of his, that's God's, grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And this is what Paul's saying. The reason that he saved you, the reason that he poured out his grace is so that he, God, could put it on public display so all could see. That is a gift. That is a gift to you and me who, before we came to faith in Christ, and it's a gift to all those who've not yet done so. He puts it on public display and says, look, from the time that he wrote this passage, or this, this scripture, maybe in 65 AD, until today, until his return, until forever, he has poured out his grace and his great kindness so that he could put it on public display, so all could see. That's crazy. That is amazing grace. But why? Why would God do this? Why would God so pour out his grace on you and me? Have you ever thought that? you ever stopped to just think? You know, years ago, uh, Renee and I were at a church in Missouri, and the pastor there was he, uh, a Dallas Seminary graduate. So he went to Dallas. And while he was there, he told, uh, told the story that happened. He said they were in, uh, in a class, and they thought, well, you know what? They had such a great relationship with their professor. And they said, Prof, I know you've been teaching a lot about theology, and you've been teaching us students about theology and as pastors and missionaries. You know, we need to understand theology. But what, what's the most difficult theological truth for you to grasp? And just like C.S. Lewis, he didn't hesitate. And I'm not going to do this because he's saying it. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And then he said, gentlemen, when you can figure that out, when you can figure out why God would so love a wretched sinner like me, you'll be in heaven. But until then, you can't. You've got to understand how bad sin is to understand how great God's love is. You've got to have the bad news if you're going to understand the good news. Well, as I told you earlier, Paul is on a rant, you know, and so, you know, you've got to repeat yourself when you're in a rant because you don't think that those that you're talking to really hear you. So that's what he does in, in verse 8. So in case his listeners and we missed it, he has already said it in verse 5. Now he's going to say it in verse 8 again. For by grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved. And here's, here's what's so amazing about Scripture, about the Bible. So often we read it and we skim through things and we don't really look at what's there. In the Greek language, and, and some of you don't know what this is. Alex, you know what we're about to go to here. This is a perfect passive participle. All right. For some of you, it's like, what, what does that mean? Here, he could have used, Paul could have used a simple past tense verb. You were saved. Okay. But this is a perfect passive, which means whatever happened in the past has continuing results today and in the future. You have been saved. You are saved. You will be saved by grace. 
And that's very significant because he used the same unique verb construction in both 5 and verse 8. It's crazy. And since it's passive, the person that they're talking about, he's not doing or she's not doing the action. Somebody's doing it for them or in their benefit. You were saved. It doesn't cut it. You have been saved. And you have been saved because of God's grace, not because of what you've done. So even the grammar here supports that grace is a gift. But then Paul adds two little words, through faith. The grace is available to all. For whosoever will believe on the Lord shall be saved. The grace is available, but it has to be appropriated personally. Which brings me to the second gift that Paul has here. And it's the faith is God's gift. Faith is the means by which we're saved. You know, the word faith and believe and trust are all the same words in the original language. And for us, we use faith, trust, and believe sometimes a little different with a different nuance, but not in the Bible. Anytime it says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, it's the same as saying, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same as it means, have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Have confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are all the same ideas in the original. This gift of faith is taught by even Jesus. Now, some of you are saying, well, I'm not sure I believe that faith is actually a gift. I think it's maybe something that I do. Well, in John chapter 6, Jesus is talking, and he's been teaching the crowd, the multitude, in parables. And so he's finished that, and pick up the reading, and we've got it on here. I know it's kind of hard to see because it's small, but listen to what happens here. When many of his disciples heard it, heard the hard teaching, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Who can hear it and obey it? Who, who can do that? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do not, do you take offense at this? Do you take offense because I'm teaching hard? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? So hypothetically, what if you just saw me go back to where I was before? By the way, in Acts chapter 1, they'll do that. They will stand there and watch Jesus ascend into heaven. But he throws that out. Hypothetically, will that be too hard for you to believe? If you saw it? Listen to what he says. It is the Spirit who gives life. It is the Spirit. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there is some, there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Well, we all know who that is. And then he said, Jesus said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. The very ability to believe is something that God grants. The faith itself is a gift. I'm going to go out on a limb here. Actually, I'm going to go out in the audience, and it's going to get scary, all right? I almost thought about bringing a prop in. Let's assume that you and I, 
we go, decide that we're going to go out on the ocean. We're going to get on a ship, and it might be a cruise ship or some kind of ship with people on it, and we're going to go across the ocean. So we get on the ship, and we're going. And on this cruise ship or on this ship, there is one guy. And this one guy, he just gives you a hard time. I mean, he's picking on you for how you eat. He's picking on you for your clothes. He's just giving you a hard time. And, you know, you're like, what did I do to you that you give me such a hard time? What is this? Well, a few days go by, and suddenly the ship has some kind of disaster, and the ship is going down. And so everybody abandons ship, and you find yourself in a lifeboat. So you're in this lifeboat, and you're paddling around, and you know, you're, you're a good person, so you're looking around and you see all these people, they're out there trying to, you know, make it, and they're not in the lifeboat, so you help them in the lifeboat, and then you're, you know, you're, you're doing your duty, and you look out there, and there is that guy, that guy that gave you such a hard time, and he's out there, and, and he's been there for a while, and he's just, it's all, he, he has no life jacket, he's just out there, all he can do is just, you know, you know what I'm saying? You picture it? Okay? And you wonder, Okay, i got to save this guy, too. But he's been giving me a hard time. <laughs> so you grab the, the, you know, the, the donut thing, the life preserver, and you throw it out there. And you're throwing it for all you can, but he's out there a long ways. And you say, hey, swim over and get the life preserver. I'll pull you back in. But he can't do it. He's so tired. He's so scared. You know, and, and he's just in a panic. So you reel it back in, and you get a little closer. And now you throw it. And it goes right around his head, right around his neck. And you say, okay, now, now we got it. Okay, buddy, hold on, hold on. Just reach up and hold on. But he's panicky. He's, he's scared. He's afraid. You know, and he knows the hard time that he's given you. Right? So you reel it back in and you think, okay, he's, all right. So you row the boat over. And you're getting the lifeboat out here a little closer and a little closer. And finally, you say, dude, just give me your hand. Give me your hand. Now, he's got a choice. He can take your hand so you can pull him in the boat, or he can reject your hand. That's faith. Did he do anything in saving himself? No. All he did was respond to the action and the work that, that this person did. All right? That's faith. Now, let me give you an Alfred Hitchcock twist. The, the roles are reversed. You're not the guy in the boat saving everyone. You're not the good guy. You're the jerk that's drowning, that needs a savior, needs a rescuer. That's who you are. So the roles change. And that's the biblical model of faith. Will you receive what God is trying to do by giving you the grace and the faith to accept his forgiveness, his rescue? What is biblical faith? Biblical faith is never referred to as a work. It is never referred to as a work. Never, never, never. By him reaching out his hand, that's not a work. That's a response. Biblical faith is described in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. See, work 
only produces sin and work only produces in the flesh the understanding how far away you are from God. Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? You know Jesus had interactions with the Jewish teachers. So did Paul. And he makes this argument. The Jews all say, well, Abraham is our father. And he says, really? Is that really what you're claiming? Because listen to what he says. Abraham believed God, believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So if you work for it, it's not a gift. You don't go to your boss on payday and say, oh, thank you so much for this gift, do you? You say, thanks, I got what I work for. Or maybe you got a little extra that you didn't work for, I don't know. And then he goes on to say in verse 5, And to the one who, who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. His faith is counted because you count the faith because of your belief. So what then is faith? Well, I love what Hebrews chapter 11 says. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, by faith, the pe- uh, by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, and so that what was seen was not made out of things that are visible. See, we have faith that God created the world and all that's in it. Biblical faith, and I've got several things on this next slide, and don't get panicky if you can't write them all down. Just listen to what what I'm going to say. Biblical faith is always based on knowledge, but it's more than knowledge. It always brings about some kind of feeling, or should bring about some kind of feeling, but it's more than feelings. It gives one a better outlook on life, but it's more than positive thinking. It brings appreciation, but it's not a loan that can be repaid. You can never repay. I could never repay the man who rescued me, because I owe him my life. Saving faith is always rooted in a truth, and it's the truth that Jesus died for sinners. And if you want biblical faith, you have to believe that. You have to know that biblical faith is not happen chance. It's not I hope so. It's based on the truth that Jesus died for sinners. But that truth has to be appropriated personally. And you have to take it further and say, Jesus died for me. He died for me. I'm glad he died for you. But I'm more glad that he died for me. You know what I'm saying? And it has to be lived out with a commitment. True biblical faith brings about a commitment when we say, Jesus, you are now boss. You are now in charge and large in my life. And if it's genuine, that's what it'll produce. In verse 8, Paul goes on and says, And this, and this is not of your own doing. Remember I said he's going to keep repeating himself? This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. And what's amazing about the structure here in the language, the this is both the faith and the grace and everything that he has said in this surrounding passage. All of this is God's gift. Not just the faith, not just the grace. It is all 
by grace. Crazy. And as a parent who just keeps repeating himself, and he says it again, it's not the results of works. It is not the results of works. Because if it was, you'd be able to boast. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? This guy has just rescued me out of the, out of the, you know, the deepest, darkest ocean, and I run around for the next 20 years and say, I saved myself, you know? Look at all the work that I did. You know, I, I couldn't swim to the life preserver and I couldn't put my hand around it, but I stuck my arm up and look at how great I am and look at all the good works that I did. Would that seem kind of strange? Yeah, that's what Paul says. It's not, you can't boast. You did nothing. Well, how we're saved is by grace through faith. Why we're saved, Paul says, is so that God can put his gracious love his mercy on public display so all can see. And then he goes on, he says, let me tell you what you're saved for. Why did he pour all this out? Which is the third gift. And it's the work is God's gift. You know, once before, Paul says, you had a purpose and your purpose was sin and death. But now you have a new purpose. God is the great exchanging God. And I don't understand why some people want to hold on to the old when God says, let go of the old. I have got so much better if you'll just take hold, if you'll just receive the exchange that I'm making. This, this purpose has two folds. There's an inward work that God does, and he says that in verse 10. He says, for we are his workmanship. This is a unique word in Scripture. It's only found in one other passage, and that's Romans 1.20. And in Romans 1.20, Paul uses this word about the workmanship, and he's really comparing it to the world, the universe, all the plants and animals. The entire creation that God has done was his workmanship. This word is the word that we come, uh, bring over to the English language as the word poem. We are God's poem. And for you artsy people, it's your, your God's workmanship. You are his masterpiece. You are his special work of art. And it says that only he can do it. And it happens inside first. And just like a potter will take a lump of clay, if you've ever seen this, they take a lump of clay and they throw it on that spinning wheel and they start fashioning out something and for non-artsy people, we look at that in amazement and they're making it and they make it into a, a beautiful, for some of you, God is making you into a beautiful vase. Not a vase, a vase. <laughs> anyway. And you are amazing. For others of us, God is making us into a dinner plate or a teacup or a coffee cup. But you know what? Try to drink your coffee out of that dinner plate. It won't work. All right? Each of us are created where we have a purpose. And God is the one who is doing the work. He is the one that is giving the gift. You know, God doesn't say, hey, I saved you. And uh, dude or dudette, you're on your own now. You've got to make yourself into a something special. God doesn't say that. He says, no, I saved you. I gave you grace. and I gave you faith. I'm giving you, I'm doing a work in your life and in your heart. And I am the one that's doing it. You're not on your own. We've already found out. Our works, no good. His works, amazing. 
Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old have passed away. Behold, the new has come. You were once like this. God is refashioning that. He's repurposing that. He's making you something special. Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You know, you're not finished. Aren't you glad that God's not finished with his masterpiece in me? You know, I, I hope you're glad that he's not finished with you yet. And that's a promise. That, you know what? He doesn't make mistakes, but he keeps fashioning and he keeps molding. The story was told of, um, if you've ever seen the statue of David uh, by Michelangelo, one person asked him, so, hey, how did you create this amazing statue of David? He said, that was easy. I just chipped away everything that wasn't in the statue. That is what God is doing for us. And he's not finished. He's going to continue to work. And that's a promise from him. Not only is there an inward work that God is doing, but there is an outward work that God wants to do in and through you. In verse 10, the second half, he says, you were created in Christ Jesus for good works. The created there, God is the only one who can create. All we can do is kind of take what's there and make something out of it. God can start from nothing. And he is the one who created us for good works. This work is a work that only he can do in and through each of us. So what is this good work that he wants to do? Wouldn't you like to know? All right, I'm glad you asked. I know you guys are I'm losing you. Generally, God is doing something in us and he wants to do something in all believers. And everyone who has trusted has accepted his grace by faith. Generally, he says, and most of us know one of these verses, but I don't think we know it the way it really is read or re written. Excuse me. God wants all believers to become more like his son, Jesus, but more like our Savior. Look at Romans 8, 20, 29. So often this passage is used to teach something that it's, that's really not there. Listen to what Romans 8, 29 says. For those, whom, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. For salvation? Well, yeah, but that's not what this verse says. This says that he predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. In eternity past, God was able to look down and say, this person is going to receive my gift of grace by faith, through faith. And for that person... The plan is that they become more like Jesus. That's the plan. Foreordained. Become more like Jesus. Not only do we, are we expected to become more like Jesus and God do that work in us, but all believers are expected to exhibit and live out the fruit of the Spirit. That's in the next two chapters, Ephesians chapter 4. He's going to talk about all the important things that a true believer is going to live out regularly, not perfectly, but regularly. You know, we read scripture and sometimes we pull ourselves out of the context and we just, we don't quite understand what's going on. Paul has been at this church. Of all the churches that he started as a missionary, he spent more time in Ephesus than any other church, probably two and a half years. Most Bible scholars believe that Paul has been gone about six years. And then he writes to them these words. 
This is how important it is as a parent or as a missionary or as a pastor. This is the weight that falls on us. That we look down and we say, we started them well, but we're not finished yet. I need to tell them one more thing. I need to tell them one more thing. I need to help them understand one more thing. And that's what he's doing here. He says, this is how important it is for us to understand. But then he goes on to some specific things. What are the specific works that God wants to do in and through you and me? I'm glad you asked. God has uniquely equipped and empowered each believer with special gifts and talents. He doesn't expect us to take those special gifts and talents that he's equipped us with and have us sit on them. He expects us to use them. He's given them to us for us to use for his work, for his glory to build his kingdom. Now, we've got things here to help you. If you don't know what those are, we can help you discover what those special gifts and talents are. But each of us have those. And God is doing a work and wanting to do a work both inside this church, village church, and outside through you and you alone. So let me be a little just pastoral here. You have a choice, just like somebody had a choice to reach up. By faith, you can say, you know what, God, I know you've prepared, you've given me talents and gifts to do a special work for you here in this church. And you have a choice. You can say yes or no. And if you say no, two things are going to happen. Someone else in the church is going to have to do that, that work that God has really equipped you to do. But because it's so important, he will raise up someone else to do it. And you'll miss out. Or that work will go undone. And if that work goes undone, someone is going to miss, and it's not going to be just you that miss, it's going to be someone else is going to miss out on the blessing of you doing a great work for God. So here's the question. How are you doing at accomplishing his work. How are you doing at letting him fashion you into a masterpiece, into a beautiful vase? How are you doing? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that as we had a chance to look into your word, wow, what amazing grace we have from you. What amazing truth about the grace, the faith, and the works that you were wanting to do in our lives and through our lives. Father, I pray for those that maybe have never truly accepted the grace and faith and salvation. Lord, I know that you've loved them, you love each of us, and you just asked us to respond. For those that are in this room right now that have not been exercising their faith and allowing you to do a work in them and through them. I pray that today will be a day that life change, be a life-changing day for them, that they'll just commit themselves and allow you to do that great work through them. Father, we can't praise you enough and can't proclaim your grace enough. In Jesus' name, amen.